0: Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Show Ghosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. And today, we're excited to have Kevin Wang on the pod. Kevin is currently Chief Product Officer at Braze, a nearly $5 billion market cap public company. Kevin was actually employee five at Brace and uniquely has grown from the earliest days to an exec at scale. So in this episode, we're going to cover that journey, that scaling journey. We're also going to cover a lot of the early stage advice that Kevin and the team lived in those days, and then also how Brace's product won in a frankly competitive market when they first started out. So we want to dive right in, want to make the most use of our time here. And so to start with, really, Kevin, like from that zero to one stage, right? What led you first to join Braze, which at the time was actually called Appboy, And what got you excited about it? So
1: when I originally joined Braze, the main thing that really drew me to Braze as a business was that I deeply believed in enterprise and enterprise software. And going back to 2011, 2012, this is sort of the heyday of social and location based startups like Foursquare. So being into enterprise software was viewed as sort of Deeply uncool, I would say, like at a minimum. Uh, So I really believed in enterprise. And the other dimension that I really believed in was sort of the general evolution of, I would say, technology and society's relationships that we were seeing with mobile. And it was becoming very clear that with sort of the rise of the iPhone, the rise of those early, really powerful Android phones, we were starting to see major changes in terms of you know, everything ranging from apps and games all the way out to retail, and essentially that all consumer industries were increasingly being altered by the fact that now computing was fully personal, fully real time, and, and in your pocket. And even more traditional forms of digital marketing and digital engagement, like a website or like email, we're going from sort of asynchronous ways of communication into real-time channels that are right there available in your pocket. And all of that was really, really exciting and just drew me to the business. Also knew Bill, who's our founder and CEO. And so between those connections, it just made a lot of sense to dive right in.
0: You joined as a software engineer, right? And then now you're the, the chief product officer. So at some point you made that transition. And I can imagine that was probably, or maybe not a hard transition to make, just given one, it's not something that you were necessarily doing or I'd learn. And then two, also, I assume, like, you were frankly doing a good job on the engineering side, because you were still, you know, scaling with the org. So talk us through that a little bit. I'll sort of start at the beginning, which is that when I first joined at Braze, it was pre-product,
1: pre-revenue. We had some lines of code written, but I'll never forget on on my first day or or my second day, one of the first tasks that I got was like, hey, you know, we should really have like a settings page that you can like see your profile on this dashboard. I mean, it was so basic. There were like two screens on the whole product. And so it was very, very early. And so I was an engineer through till when we got to around a million dollars or so of ARR, through a pivot, through a very kind of interesting and longer than expected slog I think to product market fit and then from there I actually started to manage engineering teams and was running tech recruiting for a number of years and around 5 million dollars of arr at that point we did not have really anyone who had been in a long term role as a product manager but the discussion that we started to have was it's really kind of high time this product is getting complicated this business is getting complicated we should have a PM, and I really raise my hand to be that person. You know, nowadays, $5 million of ARR yeah, for a PM, it's funny. like that sounds crazy. It's yeah, like well, crazy. You, you've got a whole stable of PMs by this point in time. But back then, a lot of what we were doing was essentially just having the founders and the early engineers and engineering managers making a lot of the product calls. Worked out well for us. Not a very scientific process. I do not necessarily recommend this, strictly speaking. But that's what the transition looked like. And so ran things then
0: from around the 5 million ARR mark through till today. Well, so I mean, these are the great early stage stories that we want to kind of cover here. So let's talk more about those early days, right? Like what were some of those early things that either you personally got right or the team got right as a whole and any specific anecdotes that you can share around that.
1: Yeah. So I would say that some of the biggest things that we got right were that we hired a number of really strong technical and call them sort of tech adjacent people as a lot of the early crop of employees. So, you know, we had a lot of strong technical talent on the founding team. And then a lot of those first hires really gave us the capacity to build quickly. And so, like I said before, a lot of our product thinking back then was I would say we were not following as scientific a process of product discovery as you would see now. You know, there's been so many blog posts now and so many resources on here's what you do. You get the letters of intent, you pre-sell the product, sell it off a deck, iterate quickly, all of these, you know, great things. We were kind of looking at this like, well, you know, we can, we can code real fast and <laughs> it seems like this is the right thing and conversations indicate this might be right. So let's just build this entire product and let's hope that the market turns before something bad happens. And what I think one of the advantages of having a really strong technical team is that we were able to move very, very quickly and build a lot of the core of the platform that we have today really fast. And just by constantly staying engaged with customers, just kind of iterate in real time to just get ourselves to strong product market fit. And the huge advantage that we then had once we got there was that having that really strong sort of product velocity core meant that even if, say, $3 million, $4 million of ARR, even if we didn't have a really robust product management function that was pointing us at exactly the next right thing to build, we were able to just try many ideas. And that allowed us to actually build a much more comprehensive product with a lot of different use cases and applicability, Which and those foundations have actually served us very well in the industry intervening years.
0: How much of that speed and focus was a function of constraints, meaning just you know, funding-wise? It was obviously a very different environment back then than it is now. Like, How much do you think was a function of that versus a function of like careful planning on your guys' part?
1: So what I would say was that we were careful and thoughtful in the sense that we had a very, very strong market perspective. And, I, and I'll really credit our founding team here and a lot of the the early folks there, in terms of we were really, really aligned in where we thought the world was going to go in terms of always on, highly personalized consumer and brand communication, real-time communication being essential and a very cross-channel world. So we were really, really aligned there. And I think that what the Velocity allowed us to do was essentially to test kind of all of the branches of the tree that sort of fit within that overall vision and overall worldview. And as a result, we had a lot of features in the earlier days of the product. So for example, we had a user feedback feature, which we don't have anymore today, because that's another example of something that's very real time, very personal, very much in the moment, can be very cross channel. We were just putting a lot of bets out there and in some ways sort of flooding the zone with bets using that unique advantage that we did have. of You're in a green field with a lot of strong engineers. Let's just take up as much of it as we possibly can.
0: Yeah. It's so funny because right now it's like the common advice is much more focused, right? Like it just find your core wedge, find that pain point, right? And build for that. But you guys almost did the opposite and then almost like trimmed back to that core wedge. Is that the right way to frame it? Or I think
1: that that's a pretty accurate way of viewing it because for us, I think that the overall process that we were following was very much one of we were fully convinced that this view of the world, which has turned out fortunately to be correct, was going to be right. And it was very much as a result, in our minds, a matter of can we build the right product to take the right structural place in that new world? We don't want to be in a very narrow niche of this new sort of always-on, highly personalized world, because that's not who's going to actually win that future world. So it's more like, how much of it can we take up? And then the other concern, of course, was timing. And there's certainly a lag between having a product that eventually got to product market fit and then having the fit itself where you're kind of counting down the months, looking at the bank accounts, you know, <laughs> a bit of a nerve wracking
0: process. The name was also just so good back in the day. I just remember it would come up in conversations and we'd just be like, it was so amazing for that point in time. Right now, I think Braze is much more aligned with what, what you guys are doing, but yeah. it, was, <laughs> it all it all worked out in its own way. But what about things that felt like really big problems or big losses or stuff at the time that maybe now looking back, you're like, hey, you know what, actually it wasn't, or you learned a lot from it. So one area that felt like a real step backwards
1: in some regards was that we pivoted the business in the early days of the company. We were building in sort of an, an adjacent space of essentially a social network for users of mobile apps. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, a lot of the original business, essentially the idea was that if you had, well, they didn't exist back then, but if you had, say, a food delivery app, you could check in within the food delivery app and sort of earn badges or rewards similar to a check-in on Foursquare, share which apps you were using as a discovery mechanism because a lot of this predated the app store. We weren't really able to get traction on that sort of business, and many changes to the ecosystem ultimately obviated it. But what we found was that we had some functions and features around analytics and like who's using your app or, hey, here's some news. Here's some news and alerts. You can send them to your users. And when we had user conversations, the feedback that would come back was, hey, the analytics, the news and alerts. We want that. Can we get more of that? And that's ultimately what started to really open up the business towards this idea of highly personalized real time communication. But when you decide that you're going to pivot, even those very early days, if the company is under a year old or something like that, it feels like you're just throwing everything out. And so it feels like this huge deal. When in reality it was very sort of minor, I would say, and obviously kind of worked out in the end. And then the other big one that I would say is that losing certain deals, and this is something that goes on forever and is sort of the eternal story, I think, of enterprise software, where you know, when you're a startup and you lose that big deal that you'd been working on for six months and the pipeline's not that broad because there's only 30 people at the company, or later 50 or later 100 or you know, 1,000 for that matter, it just feels like getting punched in the stomach. And I think that one of the real startup journeys or learnings that I've had is that you have to just kind of expect that you're going to spend years getting punched in the stomach. And that's not a good feeling, but it does ultimately lead to that sort of grizzled startup veteran resilience that you see in a lot of people who've been longtime operators where their biggest competitor launches some big, scary new feature. And they just kind of look at it and say like, all right, well, okay, back to our day, just because they've built that resilience over all of the different scars
0: and scar tissue that have compounded. We need a meme that's just like your face and says, "Just like you know, roll with the punches or learn how to take yep. them. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what about like, Paul Graham famously has his do things that don't scale essay, right? And I, I think that's something that There's these countless anecdotes through all the different startups out there. What were the anecdotes that you remember in those early days? We did a lot of things that didn't scale. I would say that we were fortunate enough to have read that essay and to have a,
1: a real kind of go get them attitude. So fortunate or unfortunate enough that we've got a lot of stories. I mean, one of the first ones that comes to mind is I have done this is many years ago, but I've done some amount of DIY plumbing at our offices and not sort of DIY plumbing because I you know, wanted to help out, but a little bit because someone had to do it. If you're having a plumbing <laughs> issue in your, in your office, I'd say on the more sort of software work front... One thing that we had a lot of in the early days was what I call like army of one product development heroics. So these cases where you identify there's a need, you identify that there's some sort of product that you need to build to close that customer because you've heard it in five different sales calls, just because three or four support tickets have brought it up. And rather than going through the full process of, you know, let's get a designer on this, let's get a PM on this, let's do the competitive research, let's get a team of three engineers to map out an architecture diagram. Even if it's a pretty big feature, someone just sits down and they're like, well, you know what? Forecast says it's going to be really rainy on Saturday, and I'm just going to do it on Saturday. And then you'll review it on Sunday, and then we'll merge it on Monday, and that's going to get this customer happy. So we had a lot of that going on. I remember at least one case where our CTO and I were speaking with a salesperson, and we were saying like, hey, your word is on the line here. This deal is going to close if we build this feature. And he's like, yep. It's going to happen. And this customer is now a very, very long term, very large customer of ours. And yeah, we just ended up building what they needed basically over a long weekend. And there's no better feeling. But I will say like, you know, 9pm on that Sunday
0: night, you're just sure it would be nice to have like 11 engineers working on this. I feel like that's a unique thing that can happen because a lot of times, even at those earliest moments, some person in the org will still be like, that's kind of my domain or you're stepping on my toes. Was there something culturally that allowed that to happen you think we had a few different
1: aspects of our culture that i think certainly facilitated that although i won't say that they're rare from the startups that i'm close with i think some of these traits are fairly common so one of them is just being very outcome oriented i mean i think that startups that are not outcome oriented have a very, very challenging time. And so just looking at it and saying, there's one person available to do this, there is one day available to do this, we're just going to drop everything. I think that that's part of it. I think that the other thing that really facilitated our willingness to sometimes like really go above and beyond with some heroics, again, in the early days, I don't recommend this sort of late stage growth stage startups, is that is that actually going back to our very clear vision for where we thought the world was going. And when you've got the really clear vision of where the world is going, then you have a clear vision of what your product needs to do. When you have a clear vision of what your product needs to do, then that actually starts to inform very clear visions of what your architecture needs to be. And when you have a clear vision of your architecture, so in our case, for example, we think the world is going to be natively cross channel, the world will need to work in real time for communication. What that means is that for any sort of special product that you're building or kind of heroics to just go off and break the back of some new problem space or feature space, you're always doing it within the framework of this is the architecture we're going to need to have. And so you build in a way that's much more future-proofed. And when I think through a lot of the the different sorts of products that we had to build sort of on short notice, a lot of them are actually still with us because they weren't just completely extraneous details. They fit into that overall narrative, that overall tapestry of what we knew that we would need in the long term. And it was more of conceptually pulling things forward a few years rather than inventing or just doing whatever a customer asked for.
0: I have a slightly technical question, actually. It's just like at that time, you just talked about cross-channel. And basically, all I think about is data sources from all sorts of different places, right? And you didn't have at the time, or I imagine like there wasn't Kafka, there wasn't Snowflake. So how'd you do it? Like, did you just have a Postgres database and you just kind of like jerry-rigged your own message queues and stuff? How'd you get there?
1: There's a lot of different technologies that we use a lot of. For a lot of this, we use like Mongo and Redis as an example. What I would say is that it's less about literally the specific technology that you're using and more about planning out your architecture and planning out the constraints on the system, at least in our case, to ensure that whatever technology you're using, because a lot of these technologies are really powerful and they can operate at very, very high scale if they're set up to do so, it's more about knowing what your constraints are. So like knowing, hey, this has to work in real time, or knowing, look, we know that just like we're going to send somebody an email today, we might be sending them a push notification tomorrow, we might be sending them some sort of notification on a completely different channel, that doesn't even exist yet. And this is something that's actually relevant to us a few years in the future. So the way that you've architected that system at its core, it needs to be extensible essentially to end different use cases one day.
0: I want to talk about those first few customers. So you you actually mentioned, you know, the Saturday and Sunday work to get that customer on board, but how'd you acquire them, right? How'd you get to know those first few customers? And what was the process behind that? Like,
1: We were actually very fortunate to have a very networked founding team. So Mark, one of our founders, just knew a lot of people in the industry, which helped to open the door. And then once we got in there, what we were often looking for were different places or different ways that we could just get in front of a bunch of different brands that might want to use the platform. But what we were really indexing on was brands and folks who really shared that overall worldview that we had and what was very fortunate i think in the sort of growth marketing customer engagement as a burgeoning category that category of buyer is very willing to change it's very novelty seeking this isn't like building accounting software where you need to evolve your accounting software when like the law changes for us i mean all the marketers who had missed the internet wave, we're so paranoid about missing any future wave in the future that there's just in our space, we're really fortunate that there's a very, very strong culture of thoughtful early adoption, because it's like, you don't necessarily want to push all your chips in on the magic leap. But the person who misses the internet is someone who loses their job. And so as a result, we were really looking almost for the
0: cultural vision alignment, and then just trying to really double down there. Going off of that, what was the biggest unlock overall for you? Did you ever have this specific moment or time where you're like, ah, we finally hit product market fit. This is it. Like this feels good. So I do have a moment
1: where I realized that we had product market fit. And I remember it so well that I almost remember the seat I was sitting in at this restaurant. So it was our holiday party around Christmas of 2013. And I remember just sort of sitting there and just thinking through what the last few weeks have looked like, where we had started to really close a lot of really meaningful enterprise businesses. And even more than closing an enterprise customer, they were using our product in the way that we wanted them to. Because I think that one thing that a lot of startups can get in trouble with is that you build a product, you build all this stuff because you're just throwing spaghetti at the wall trying to get to stick. You're a spaghetti throwing machine and you end up closing these customers who are using your product in sort of an unintended way that you don't think really matters, that your product isn't really built for. And so you have the revenue dollars, but you don't have the product market fit. What we were starting to see at this point was we were starting to see customers using us, and actually some of them are still customers today, for exactly what the right reason was. And when you talk to them and their product asks and their product feedback, all of it was so aligned. And it's the sort of thing where you say, like, what are the top five things that you want to one of these customers? And the five things that they want are, like, all in the top eight of your backlog because you're that much in lockstep with them. So we had that moment. That was the moment for me where I was like, okay, this is really exciting. I think this is going to work. It was also exciting for me because coming from consulting, it's like, you know, you left like a real job and now you're in a, you know, we work with an unfinished (laughs) team. You can tell your parents, right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) just like, okay, phew. It's like, you know, the, the holiday dinner just got like a little bit less awkward. But again, I think the interesting thing there for us is that the unlock was very much an unlock of the market evolving, not that unlock of us sort of building the last feature to satisfy an already known market that we had pre-vetted. And that just goes back to this idea that we were very much building for that broader vision that we thought was going to be the case rather than, say, very iteratively building towards how do I get a foothold in a niche to get like 10 unaffiliated customers to raise my next round and sort of maybe the way that I think is the more modern and and in some ways kind of more
0: reasonable and I would say recommended approach these days. One thing you mentioned was, hey, we got those first few customers and I started to feel good. I started to feel like we had that pull. But how quickly did you go enterprise, right? Because obviously, if you go enterprise almost too quickly, they're asking for SSO. They're asking for RBAC. They're asking for all these things. That starts to skew the product roadmap. So how did you think about that as you were kind of getting those early customers?
1: We loved enterprise. So in the earliest days, you kind of closed whoever you can. But I remember from very early on, we had made the decision of we want to be enterprise. And even when we were selling to smaller customers, even when we had like a freemium version of the product, we very much had in our minds that we felt that the enterprise was where the promise was, the enterprise is what we wanted to go to. And that's, proven to be something that's been really exciting for us because the thing with the enterprises is that these are these enduring businesses that have decades-long relationships with their customers. And so they're the ones who really need the full power, the full sophistication of the suite that we wanted to build. And so then when you look at something like an RBAC, when you look at something like partnering with all of these different SSO tools and building in compliance and governance features and all and approvals and all the things that the enterprise needs, we view that as an advantage because In as much as we've got confidence in our team's ability to have velocity, we had it then, we have it now, what's really great about that is that as you're building more and more for the enterprise, all of those features that you build to make your customers happy and to help them be successful with the product, that is just widening and widening and widening the moat for other sorts of competitors. Because you're tightening your product market fit in a commercially viable way at every single step because you get to build up that enterprise flywheel. And so we actually view that as something really compelling and a really important part of the
0: story. What about customer acquisition of those customers? So you mentioned, you know, hey, one of the founders had great relationships, right? Well, that's awesome. You know, that can call up people and, and that works really well. But at some point, that well starts to run dry really quickly, right? So how did you evolve past that? What were the kind of things that worked well?
1: So I would say that for closing down customers in the enterprise, and also I should just be clear that we have customers of many different sizes, but like generally speaking, I would say we skew larger. We're not selling to you know two, three-person companies generally. So for us, a lot of it was about running effective land and expand motions, and that's still something that works for us and that we're excited by. And the way that we would often do it was using the fact that we had some of these structural advantages that sort of tied into our overall beliefs about the market, like the belief that mobile was going to be important, or the belief that having the ability to do really real-time, highly responsive orchestration of campaigns was important, because those start to serve as the wedges where we could say to a large enterprise, look, this use case is going to be so impactful for you that you have to purchase a product like ours, and then you get in there, and that's when you can start to leverage the fact that, like, okay, well, you know, we built all of this role-based access controls for a different enterprise customer, and that's how we try to expand laterally.
0: Yeah. Before we move into our next section, I want to ask you about like that one to 10 journey, right? Because that's a lot where a lot of founders are in that right now. They've hit 1 million of ARR. They feel like, okay, we've got something working, right? But now they got to go and start to scale up to that, let's call it next milestone around 10 or so. What things worked really well for you guys at that stage? There's a lot of things that matter at that stage. But two of the main ones are that
1: one is that we really focused and I think we're very fortunate to hire really great people during that journey. I think 1 million to 10 million ARRs is a really tough moment to be in because when you're at that point, you just have to grow and grow and grow. I mean, that's what's sort of determining the long-term viability of the business, as you know. But you're not a brand. You're not cool when you're at like $3 million of ARR, kind of no matter how fast you're growing. And so as a result, your ability to go out there and hire someone from central casting with really great hair who's done it four times before you have essentially no ability to do that and so what you do have ability to do is go hire someone with a lot of talent who could be that person in a few years so identifying that is really key and so among other things that we did fairly early on we started to get very actually regimented about our hiring practices and our interview practices we also had a very robust internship program, even from relatively early stages, because we were finding this is one of the great ways. I think Joel Spolsky or something has like a whole thing on this where you you can get really top talent out of an internship program because you're sort of getting the first crack at it. So that's something that we really, really pushed for of just being willing to take flyers on people if we were seeing really raw talent. The other thing that I think was really key for us, and I think is something that probably more startups should keep in mind, is just don't prematurely optimize your culture. I think there's this temptation in startups, especially once you've raised some meaningful venture dollars from a famous firm to do what I call like cosplaying as being a big company. Like you go and you watch some podcasts from a company you know, from, like, Uber or something. They've got tens of thousands of employees. And then you start doing all these things. Like, you have tons of retros, like, very super well-produced all-hands. You hire until your org chart looks like a five-layer wedding cake, when really what you should have done was you should have just... I mean, I was an engineer, so I'll say this. Like, you should just, like, get all the engineers and designers and PMs in a room, and you just, like pour Mountain Dew in through the windows until the product's really awesome. That is what I think actually gets you through that phase. Because then, especially 20, 30, $40 million of ARR, once you're past like 150 employees, that's the point where I think that starting to be much more thoughtful about scaling and optimizing the culture and the processes makes sense. Even then, people
0: still prematurely optimize, but really important to not do it earlier. People can't see on the video, but I was just nodding my head ferociously. And the reason is we've just seen so many companies. We call it the stage of managers hiring other managers. And so all of a sudden you go from like one product leader to then you have five and you're not quite sure what exactly anybody's working on. But it just so happens that like people are just like, well, we need to work on these other areas. So we're just going to hire people, right? Unfortunately, when you have a lot of capital, like it just sort of leads to that as a natural outcome and fighting that is the hardest thing. But if you could do it right, oh my God, it pays off.
1: It even goes beyond, yeah, the managers hiring other managers, where I think part of it, especially for folks. I'll just speak for myself, like myself, who had not really been on that scaling startup journey before, is that to an extent, you do feel some imposter syndrome. And it's like, you know, you read the blog post from Uber and Salesforce and Facebook, where they're talking about all of these great sort of magical things that they've done to help to scale up their business and grow really fast at high scale. And you start to think like, wow, like we're not doing that. Are we lazy? Like, are we, are we dumb? And it's like, no, you're just a young product and you should just build, sell support like and sleep and eat that's all that really needs to happen right now and then just trust that that market opportunity is going to work out for itself because you shouldn't invest on that much otherwise
0: build sell support we got the next meme i need i need to just like create these you know but uh i want to flip into just like your individual story i know you're humble and don't want to toot your own horn a bunch but it is pretty remarkable like you've been at the same company 12 years now, you've gone from employee five to chief product officer of a public company managing a very large org. How'd you do it? First, I just want to emphasize that those were just a few bullet points, but this took
1: a very long time. This is certainly not an overnight thing. And we've had like such a great team who've worked so hard on building to where we are right now that like you know just can't credit everyone who I worked with and learned from on the way enough and thank them for you know helping to give me that chance. I would say that some of the areas that I've at least thought about were when I switched into product in particular I didn't have a background in product management. Actually, when I started as an engineer, I don't have a computer science degree. I hadn't been an engineer before either. So it, sort of in both roles to an extent, pretty heavy extent, I was figuring things out on my own. What I really tried to do was always just talk to people who had had more experience, one stage, two stages, five stages beyond where I was, and just really try to be a student of the game and make sure that I was constantly refreshing what it might look like to look kind of one to three steps around the corner and it's actually funny now because the company raises larger than the organizations of some of those folks that i spoke to back then but it doesn't mean they were wrong i mean they were really right i feel super fortunate that i spoke with them i would also say that to an extent there's an element of luck and so in particular it's not just luck that a company grows, but I think that there is a Goldilocks zone that allows you to sort of grow and scale with an organization. I think if we had grown slower, I probably would not have had the resources to learn what I could. When you're on a good growth path, people pick up the phone and I'm always extremely grateful for that. But on the other hand, if you say 10 X one year and then 8X the next year, you get layered by like four people from <laughs> yeah. a fortune 50 company. And so there is a Goldilocks zone in which that becomes possible. And we were fortunate enough, or I was fortunate enough to stay in that Goldilocks zone.
0: Yeah. Was there one particular stage that you were like, man, this was the hardest for me to get through and learn? The trite short answer is, I
1: think it's all hard. And I will say that in particular, when I'm chatting with folks who are on that journey from zero to one million million, zero zero to $3 million of ARR, it's like, that is so tough, and if, I think if you get to even single-digit millions of ARR in SaaS, that's just such a massive accomplishment. I will never, never have anything but the utmost respect for anyone who's doing that. That said, I will say that for us and for a lot of the other folks that I know, probably around ten to thirty million dollars of ARR, and exactly the point that you hit this varies a bit, but that's often the worst. And it's typically when you get to, I think it's typically that a few different moments sort of tend to coincide. One is that a lot of your early customers are starting to come up for renewal. And so you start to get compounding support and sort of renewal account management and new business pressures all at once, because usually also you're still at that point where you're trying to triple revenue, you're trying to double revenue year over year. So it's just a lot. And the other Aspect is that you'll often start to hit 150 people like that Dunbar number, where it's just you're going from the family to a corporation. That's very challenging. And when you're doing that while learning all these motions of how do we renew our first enterprise customers, that gets really, really difficult. And it's all happening at this moment where it's still pretty hard to just go in and say, we're just going to hire. 30 people who've done this before. I mean, you often don't have those resources yet either. So all of that, I think, makes it tough. And it's a bit smoother sailing after that.
0: Yeah. Well, as smooth sailing as you can still get building a startup, which I think never never quite gets Of course, of see. course. <laughs> <laughs> but you just mentioned all those things that you had to figure out, right? It's your first time going through it. So at what points did you be like, okay, I just need to go into a dark corner and just sit there and read and work things out versus like, hey, I need to find a coach or I need to find a mentor or something to help me through this?
1: Yeah, so I would say that my general approach has been certainly in terms of, like you said, just going to the dark corner, just reading up and sort of almost treating scaling of an organization or scaling of a product or engineering group as an academic subject. I think that there's two different streams that one needs to follow when one's doing that. One is that there are certain kind of universal baseline pieces of knowledge that you were not born with, but that you need to learn. Like you need to learn things like, this is how to structure your team. This is how to hire in a thoughtful way. This is how to get the processes up and running. And I think that just acquiring that baseline knowledge at some point and just continually learning, that's really important. But then there's these really acute moments. Okay, how do I do a reorg? Yeah, oh God. That is a moment in time. And if you screw it up, it's not good. And if you do it well, then it's very effective. What I've often found is that I almost think of that as like cramming for a test. That's something that you need to do. Then you just go and you just learn and you talk to people and you read up on, on how to do it. And so that's sort of my approach on the study side. On the mentorship side, mentorship coaching and all of that. What I've generally tried to do is just kind of keep a constant, steady cadence. And I try to have my own sort of odometer going of like, all right, when have we switched from sort of one mode, like, say, from the startup mode into the growth mode or growth mode into we're trying to go public mode. And then at that point, just sort of do a flurry of having conversations with folks who are at that next stage who can help to provide the context.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Now your title is this big scary title, right? It's chief product officer. And so I imagine if you ever dive deep into something and get granular, your team says, Oh, what's going on? Kevin's starting to sniff around here. Kevin's starting to do something. So how do you manage that? So I mean, I think the short answer is that people aren't really going
1: to love it. And you know, I've been on both sides of this, like, you know, I don't love it myself either. And, and I think that as a result, I, I try to go in and really pull out the microscope relatively rarely. And when I do, I try to be both very respectful and also only do it in areas where I feel like I have something to add. So I'm just thinking back in the last year. One of the times that I did this recently had to do with an API spec for a feature that we were building. It happened to be a feature that I understand, and I've built APIs. So in this particular case, I felt a bit more comfortable going in and diving deep. One of the big challenges here is that we don't want to do that too often because I actually view autonomy as one of our key strengths as a team. And in a way, what you're trying to do with the product team is you're trying to sort of just like extend the degree to which people can really leverage their own strategic insights and their own market insights to do more. And while great product people can handle being micromanaged, they really don't want to be micromanaged. And the time that to really be a nosy backseat driver on something is actually during the interview. And ideally, you're sort of much nosier then. And that allows you to have the confidence to be a lot less nosy later on.
0: I imagine not that this would be the case, but ChatGPT comes out or something, right? Does that become a moment where you're just like, whoa, hold on. Everyone needs to get in a room and let's go figure this out. Or is it tied to customers or is it all of the above? How do you kind of think about
1: it? yeah so certainly something like chat gpt actually that's a good example for us where i certainly have dove in a lot deeper there anything i would say that has to do with major technology or in some cases maybe a regulatory change like something like gdpr when that was coming out those are cases that i think were particularly important to dive in because there are cases where knowing what to do next has to be based upon first principles reasoning rather than just looking at your data and looking at your customer feedback. I mean, something that I sometimes say to my team is, or that we, we talk about internally, is that the beauty of customer feedback is that if you've got some hole in your product that you need to fill, the customers will yell it at you today. But if you don't fill it, they will yell it at you tomorrow. Like this problem kind of takes care of itself. But when LLMs and, you know, transformer architecture comes out and there's this event to horizon where the whole world maybe opens up, those are the moments where I do think it is important to get more involved and just try to come in with as humble and open-minded an attitude as possible, because that's where you just want to make sure that the first principles reasoning that you're going through on why we're building certain things, why we aren't building certain things is really like aligned with where you want the product to go, because you won't have that data, you won't have that history or the back pressure of your customers to rely on.
0: Yeah. We've started talking about some of the product topics. And so I want to kind of dive a bit deeper into there. One thing that a lot of founders struggle with is they have an enterprise, they have an individual user, let's say start to use the product. And then now they want to have the overall enterprise use it. They want it to spread throughout the org and they want that kind of organic growth to happen. So that's something that Braze has done quite well. Obviously that comes from layering on multiple features as well to serve those personas, but like how do you in the product? encourage that viral spread throughout an org?
1: Overall, a large part of our growth at Braze actually has been due to the fact that we've sort of been intentionally kind of surfing this wave of modern customer engagement teams, modern growth teams evolving to be more cross-functional and to increasingly sort of have their influence be very broad throughout an organization because of the essentialness of customer engagement to a lot of consumer brands. So in one sense, we're kind of just like structurally in a place where a lot of the feature asks and requests that we get do naturally take us into different sorts of parts of our customers' businesses. But to add on to that, one big thing that we have focused on in the last few years, especially for companies that are trying to move fast or companies that are very large is building a lot of collaboration features. So all of like you know, your commenting, your approvals, versioning. And the way that we think about it in many cases is that one of our flagship products, Canvas, it's like a journey orchestration tool. It's essentially a visual programming language. And so what you would expect to build for that are all of these different sorts of capabilities around collaboration that you would see in an actual programming language, comments, version control, approvals because you need gates like commits and so in that sense we're able to sort of follow that conceptual framework in this collaboration and then the other big area that we focused a lot on is data flexibility so how easily can you get data into the system how easily can you get data out of the system because whether it's through us whether it's through say like a snowflake or one of these data warehouses that's increasingly having a lot of data flow into and out of it make the flow of data in many ways is the flow of collaboration within not even enterprises, kind of within any sort of modern company. And so we need to make sure that we are a part of that flow and controlling all of the data that we have in a way that it's going to be maximally useful and that we can be maximally useful to our customers by ingesting the data that we're going to need.
0: How do you think about that? The data flow in makes a ton of sense. The data flow out is something I'd be curious about, which is like kind of that almost more benefits the ecosystem around Braze than maybe directly Braze, or maybe I'm not talking about that correctly. But, you know, Salesforce, for example, doesn't really want the data to flow out, right? It wants more data flow in. So like, how do you kind of think about that portion?
1: The way that we view the data flowing out being critical is that we just know that increasingly the data ecosystem and the ecosystem of different SaaS or in-house custom applications that are going to need to consume data is evolving you know, really, really rapidly. I mean, we've gone from a place where everything was in a walled garden to places where now you have all of these different tools for getting data from one place to another. You have a whole menagerie of different places that you can store data, whether it's a cloud data warehouse or it's a streaming data provider. And because of that, We view our use cases and the job that you're doing when you log into Braze as being essential and really vital for our customers. So as a result, we just want to make sure that we're really great stewards of that data and that we're playing really nicely with all of the different aspects of businesses that our customers are going to want to operate within later on. And so we're essentially just very happy with our place in the ecosystem. And we want to partner well because we know that if they can deliver more ROI through Braze, then everything that we're doing to be part of that ecosystem is worth
0: it. Got it. Yep. One thing I'm curious about is like when you guys started out, I remember at least back in the old days, like push notifications was a big deal and that was pretty revolutionary and you guys did exceptionally well. But how do you think about a customer that's, you know, starting with something like that and now you have this full suite of products and features and stuff that they could use. So how do you get them to adopt those adjacent offerings and what do you do in the product to kind of encourage that?
1: Yeah, so we have this sort of internal philosophy or mantra of start anywhere, go everywhere, with the idea being that there need to be different core sort of initial use cases that you can land with inside of Braze, whether it's push notifications or, you know, we've actually had email as part of the product from day one or email or SMS or something like that, but that we then need to make it accessible for our customers to go everywhere and use the entire rest of the suite of the product. So we do it in a few ways. One is that we make sure that, say, all of our orchestration goes through our Canvas product or all of the composition experiences are going to be unified and cohesive and consistent so that the cross-training that's required is going to be really minimal and that all of the data is stored in a really cohesive way. So to that point, like we've invested very heavily in a design system team that has built out very consistent UI motifs so that it's really easy to expand out within the platform. But overall, I would say more than anything else, There's really a strong economic or maybe market force driving our customers to go wider across our product suite because it works and because that's increasingly what consumers are demanding of different brands. And so we view it actually more as just we're just going to kind of meet that eventual demand that you will have. And then if you're successful with us, if you continue to grow, then you're going to want that demand, whether it's on day one or it's on day 100.
0: It's so amazing that that's, you know, what you're saying now. And that's what you said in the beginning in terms of the strong vision. And that still continues to be kind of the North Star. So kudos to you guys for following that through over the last, you know, decade plus. But over all these years, was there one kind of product hack or not one, but like multiple product hacks that really worked or it kind of describe anything in that area? I mean, this is in some ways a simple one, but I I see so many
1: startups that I speak with that miss this one is just In the enterprise, so in enterprise SaaS, you could just be really upfront about asking customers what they want. I feel like there's this concept that's out there in the ether that, in my opinion, comes out of a lot of the consumer companies of like customers don't know what they want. If you go and ask them the whole Henry Ford thing of like if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. I give certainly buyers of Robust SaaS solutions, a lot more credit than that. Your general customer of a lot of these products is very sophisticated, very informed on the market, very informed on what's possible. I think you could just be really upfront about asking customers what they want and what they care about. And of course, you need to apply your own logic. Of course, you need to apply your own first principles reasoning. There are cases where they'll say one thing, and the real answer to the underlying problem is somewhere else. But I feel like to some extent, people treat this customer discovery and problem discovery aspect of product management as if it's some sort of like dark magic, alchemy, where you need to like conjure up new ideas using magical spells and like reading signs in the smoke. When in reality, if you talk to 20 customers and 19 of them say, hey, you need to fix this, like almost certainly you need to fix that. They're so incentivized to help you make your product
0: better that you just need to kind of ride the train of those incentives. That is very simple advice, but nobody writes a blog post just saying that, right? I haven't read a single blog post. It's just like... Hey, just go and ask the customer. Yeah. And and so I I feel bad, honestly. There's probably some
1: PMs out there who are talking to like Fortune 500 customers being like, what do you really want? It's like, what does that really mean? It's like, hey, like I bet they told you to the best of their ability what they really
0: mean. (laughs) Uh, That's that's amazing. Uh, When you have right now, large platform, multiple products, right? You can always add new products because customers will constantly ask, hey, can you take us here? Can you do this for me? Stuff like that. But also in the current product stack, you can also go deeper down that, right, to solve it better, to integrate more deeply, whatever that is. And so how do you balance between those two?
1: Yes. So I think it's hard. I think that in many ways, this is sort of the core role of product management. And when do we explore when do we exploit? I think that and as a result, when you have a lot of these problems, I think that's one of the first signs that you need to really start to hire PMs. So our approach to this has largely been one where we want to put our product managers into an area where they have very clear or as clear as possible gates around them or swim lanes around them, and then they have a ton of autonomy within that zone. I think that that tends to solve a lot of the problem of, do we expand and do something new or novel here, or do we just sort of refine what we have? Because what ends up happening is the product manager talks to customers and gets a lot of information about their particular zone, and usually the highest need, whether it's refining, whether it's something novel, whether it's something unrelated like tech debt, will usually bubble to the top because they're able to focus because it's all apples to apples comparison within that domain. I think where it gets really challenging is when you try to do this sort of like solving a Sudoku problem across all of the different constraints across the entire team. And that's where you end up with what I think are sort of less wise ways of prioritizing where teams say things like, okay, well, we're going to do 10% of time is tech debt and 20% of time is is this and 30% of time is moonshots. I don't think that works because that ignores the nuance of the product and customer problems that you have and your customers care about that nuance. So you actually do have to make the localized choices on particular products reflect that nuance.
0: Two final questions for you as we wrap things up. So we talked about adding new features. What about removing them? How do you think about that? I love removing features. It's cathartic. I think that large
1: folks should remove more features and remove them more slowly. So we've gotten into the case where we have systems for removing features. We have removed fairly large features. We've done the toughest thing of we've actually removed beloved features. I know we've harped on this a lot, but a lot of it goes back to that core product vision of if you have a sense for where this market is going to go, then you can see when something's aligned, you can see when it's not aligned. In terms of the way that I think about this, it's once something is not aligned, once you know, so let's say that you're a series A startup, if on the day that you ring the bell to IPO, you don't think that this product should be there that day, then you should just kick off the process now and really do the expectation setting right now that this product line is going away. And by the way, one of the first things you should do is you should make sure that it's off for every new customer who joins your platform. Like stop stem the bleeding right now. But then what we'll often do is we've got a large feature right now that's actually in sort of its long-term deprecation mode is what we do is we try to manage the expectations with our existing customers really, really carefully and almost take an iterative agile process around, like, do we need to do more migration tools to get rid of this product? Do we need to just have the conversation about, I mean, this hasn't really happened to us, but for some businesses, like, do we need to have the conversation of maybe you shouldn't be our customer anymore? And the earlier you start the communication, but the later you actually hit the off button, the smoother this whole thing works. And that's where kind of closing the gate at the start, once you know this product is sort of doomed, for lack of a better word. I think that's really the key.
0: Yeah. Final question as we wrap things up is basically, what is unique to Braze's product that you are particularly proud of? It could be something you've done personally, early, whatever, right? But what is something that you're just like, oh, this is so awesome? And again, a huge credit to our
1: team for really leading us down this road. I think that it is our ability to go very wide and deep with our product and also to be really flexible while we're doing it. And flexibility is a huge part of what makes that possible. So the fact that we have extended across all these different native customer engagement channels, but that we also have all this depth of sophistication, all of this ability to use AI and large data sets and you know, make recommendations and bring a lot of power to bear so that Our customers are always in the situation where no matter what it is that they're trying to accomplish, we're able to say, like, yes, we can help you get that done. Because ultimately, I think that it's that enduring repeated game of working with customers for many, many years, and every time they have a use case within your overall business area that you're able to help them out, that's what really builds the brand trust, and that's what leads to the really enduring customer relationships, and that's also, even more importantly as a PM, what leads to, at the end, your customers who are really seeing into the future, helping to sort of walk hand in hand to the future with you because they have been expanding their own creativity and their own horizons with your product. And now they view you as an integral thought partner when they're looking at, hey, I have a new business line. How can you help me go here? Hey, this is a new technology that I'm really excited about. How can we work together to make sure that I'm able to take advantage of that? And that ability to walk hand in hand into the future with your customers, that's been really powerful for us. And that's something that I've always been really excited about.
0: I love the product vision and sticking to it throughout all these years. That's been really amazing and highlighted quite well throughout all this. Kevin, like this was just an amazing conversation. I think so many learnings for me personally, but also I think for founders, for execs, for early employees, like I think it's just going to be incredible. So any things that you would personally like to highlight for the audience that's either coming up for Braze or or you personally?
1: I would just say on the Braze side, we're always looking for talented folks to join the team, always looking for new brands to work with, new great partners in the ecosystem to to partner with. And so, yeah, our door is always open and
0: yeah, we're excited for the future. Well, thank you so much for the time and hope to do this again soon. Yeah, thank you and take care.